0: Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons, Bible teacher and president of Florida Bible College in beautiful Orlando. Listen now as Stan makes it clear.
1: So now you have Lydia and her family. You have a little demon-possessed gal that's now a believer in Christ you have the jailer and his family, so now you have a businesswoman, you have some civil servant, and I could only believe that some of those people were already starting to lead others to Christ and there was a little church there coming to form and now Paul is now writing back to them, and he's excited. Now, when we go further in the study, you're going to see some neat things about this little church with all these different kind of personalities, different type of ethnic groups, different type of economic groups in this thing that came together, and how they blessed this great man, Paul. So those would be the believers. But there's also another group. It seems like this church really grew fast and grew strong in the Lord because the other group would be elders and deacons. I think it's an appropriate time to us to unpack the concept About elders. Now, here's what else I gained from our study with the guys. The guys were talking about their background of their belief. And what I did hear a lot was how many of them came from a Roman Catholic background. And with the Roman Catholic background, they have what you might call church polity, church government. You've got the pope and the cardinals and bishops and all of this stuff. And I got thinking, well, some of them have heard a lot of those words and they may be transferring that into a Christian belief system. And so what's right and what's not? Some of you might come out of an Episcopal background. Some of you might even be connected to an African-American system where they have bishops. And so what I want to do is talk more about churches and elders. You have a plurality. What's the difference between an elder and a pastor and a shepherd and a bishop? We're going to talk about that. And then we're going to talk about deacons. We're going to find out, is there a difference between the two? What are the qualifications? What are their responsibilities? And I'll explain why you need to know that next week as we launch that. But I want you to know those are the readers, the believers, the elders, and the deacons. And then I'd like to throw one other in there. Is because this is in the closed canon of Scripture. God wants us to read this book. And so I'm going to ask you that every week that you read, and those of you that want to go to another level, let me encourage you to read ahead every week and then read back from where I've already covered so you can be saturated in this. I remember when I was in Bible college, different people were teaching different courses, and one of my dear friends, Mike, was teaching this class on the prison epistles. And the prison epistles are Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians primarily, those three. And he went verse by verse, and he did a great job, a whole year study, And then he gave the assignment to the students of what their final exam was going to look like and i was uh, interested to hear how he was going to play this thing out are you going to do a thing like you might talk about who the writers are what's the purpose of the book what are the main thoughts how do you outline it, and all that stuff all he did was one thing for the students he said you need to memorize the book of philippians word perfect and when we launch that particular final exam you're gonna have a blank sheet of paper and you have got to write the book of philippians word perfect in order for you to pass the class you should have seen the student body, and he had about 150 students for the rest of that time preparing for their final exam all over the campus. They're all memorizing. They've got their study buddies, their prayer partners working on this together. Well, guess what? I'm not going to make you have to memorize the book, but I encourage you to do that. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. So those would be the readers. Now, here's a question. What would be the reason that the person would write you a letter? Isn't it interesting when a person writes you a letter or a note or an email, and you see who it's from, and you know it's addressed to you. How many of you see who it's from, you know it's addressed to you, it's someone that you know, and then you take that letter and you throw it away and you never read it? How many of you are like that? How many of you have ever done this? You deleted that letter before you read it on your email and you say, oh, it's gone, and you gotta go find it somewhere in your email system. That's happened to you. Well, in this case, there are some reasons. And as a great Bible scholar, one of the great commentators, William Hendrickson. And I recommend you maybe look through some of his material. I don't agree with all of his eschatology, but there's some great stuff he has in there. And he's concluded that if there would be the, the four mountain peaks of why did Paul write this? And I always like to know, why did he write this book? He came up with these four, and after I've gone through this, I, I agree with them. These are four good reasons. And that would be maybe another reason for us to gain some insight from it. So let me give you reason number one that he gives here of why Paul might have wrote this to the church at Philippi. Number one is to give written expression of his gratitude. The key word is the word gratitude. That Paul was a person. He might have been a driving, dominant individual like we see him in Scripture, but he was also one that had a tender, sensitive heart that recognized how many things were done for him by God through other people. So he really had a heart of gratitude. Look at the verses that I've taken from Philippians and where I sense where he had a heart of an attitude of gratitude. Here's what he writes in verses three and five. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Now, while he's thanking the people, he's really recognizing it was the God behind those people that had them do that. So he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Then he says, and here's where we're going with this for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. I'll speak to that in a moment. Stay with me in the verse. It says, now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, probably from the very first when he began to work with those Philippian people, he says, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared, and that's the word fellowship in the Greek, with me concerning what? Giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, in other words, when he was doing other ministry, other places, you sent aid to me once and again for my necessities. All right, so here's what you can get from that passage. When I did a study on the word fellowship here, I found out that it's in a particular tense that when you run it through the rest of the time it's mentioned in Scripture, the majority of the rest of the time, it refers to the sending of resources, perhaps money or items that he might need. So what he's really doing this now, as he is assuming... I might have been the church planter, but now I'm also the missionary that have left the church and I'm doing other mission things. But you, you provided for my needs. You fellowship with me in the gospel. So he's saying, thank you for taking care of me. He's thanking God for them, for taking care of him, for the area of the particular needs that he had. So he fellowshiped in that. And here's the key phrase, fellowship in the gospel. So he said, we were in this thing together. Now, let me speaking mostly of Pastor Dennis and me, all right? Let's let's assume that you have a, a Paul and Timothy relationship, that we're Paul and Timothy. And let's say that we started this church. And so what the church did is they collected for the needs of Stan and Dennis. And you sent that to us. When we were ministering other places, you were the first, you were always sensitive, and it was always giving back and forth because it was in the gospel. Now let's change that. And here's why I want to go with our missionary. When we have a missionary, it's not like we send out our good old boy and he's our hero and they go do the things. It is that, but it's more than that. Here's where it is. We're saying we want to reach the people of that area of the world. And we say to ourselves, we can't do it. Pastor Dennis can't go. I can't go. You can't go. But we still have a burden. So now we ask ourselves, how can we at International reach those people when we can't go? And so now we find a missionary. Maybe someone comes into our midst that God sends. So then what we do is we support them. We fellowship with them in the gospel. So they become us on that mission field. Loose sense of the word, but I think you're getting what I'm saying. So all of a sudden, international has a international presence. You know what I'm saying? We're kind of global in what we're doing and that's what was happening. Paul is saying, it's not, I loved you and I left you, it's I loved you and we're going together in the gospel and you're providing for me, and it's a thank you letter. So here's my question to you. Can you go back over memory lane just in this last week alone where someone did something for you special? They said a kind word to you, they relieved a burden from you, they gave you something, they helped you with something, and did you express a sense of gratitude back to them? That's one of the reasons he wrote this letter, and a good reminder for us that we have an attitude of gratitude, realizing that God brought those people in our life, and we're so grateful for it. Here's the second reason, to provide the spiritual guidance which this congregation needed. All right, they did need some spiritual guidance. We've already mentioned that there doesn't seem to be any major theological issue here, but there are great truths that are found in this. I selected one verse, and later on we'll kind of teach on that, but the verse says this, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that's spiritual guidance, so he says make sure that your life backs up your lips, you know, make sure that whatever you do, it's to enhance the gospel, doesn't take away from the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, one mind, together for the faith of the gospel. All that is is just a principle, it's a guidance. I'm just using that as an illustration to say, as you read the book of Philippians, this letter, you're going to see that even though he wrote the letter and he said, thank you for taking care of my needs, he also wanted to give them a free zinger. He also wanted to say, but here's something to keep in mind as well. I want to give you some spiritual guidance. And so let me give this back to you. Perhaps some of you are in the process and you have a habit of sending notes and cards and emails to others, and I encourage you to do that because I believe communication helps breeds relationships. But when you do, have in your mind what can you do to express gratefulness for that person, what they've done, and tell them that in your remembrance of that person, you thank God for them and then identify what it is. And then secondly... Is there a particular principle or verse you could leave with that person that will guide them a little bit, kind of nudge them back on track again, or to keep them back on track again, something that you could add of spiritual value to them? And I'm not going to tell you what, because you know who you're writing to, family, friends, whatever, but that you're known for a person that has a grateful heart, but also wants to continually give something of value to someone else, guidance. Here's number three. The third purpose of this book was to fill the minds and hearts of the Philippians with the spirit of gladness. So that word is gladness. I've already spoken to that, so I don't have to park long on it. We found out that 16 times in just a 4 little chapter letter, he kept talking about joy and gladness and all that kind of stuff. So maybe for you, you'd be the one that could express joy and gladness. And there are two ways you can do that. One of it is, is, in your letter, express what you're joyful about. What brings joy to your heart? Something about that other person, something that God has done in your life recently so that they really sense a joyful spirit because you're joyful because God is in control. And then the second thing you might want to do is remind them to be rejoicing as well. Remember what he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Maybe between the lines, maybe the Philippians were, maybe wobbling a little bit on their joyfulness and maybe just a little bit. He had to talk a little bit more about joyfulness. Who knows? But that you're giving a sense of joyfulness. Many, many years ago, I had a worship pastor in our church, a great guy, well known, sang in a lot of the venues in this city. I won't tell you which one, I'm gonna keep it as distant as I can. But he was an interesting gentleman, talented out the kazoo. He could play the piano, play the organ, he could play, he could lead. He was asked to sing everywhere. But on Sunday mornings, I don't think there was a Sunday morning that Carol and I would meet him usually up in the offices as he's coming in, opening up his office. And it's usually my my take, and many of you know my style, is to say, hey, how you doing today? Hey, how's it going? You know, that kind of thing. Every single time he'd say, he'd go like this, don't ask. And I thought, and he's supposed to lead us in worship. Don't ask. And he'd do that. Oh, what a weekend. Oh, and he'd go like this, very expressive kind of guy. I'll tell you, I tried to work with him and try to find, what's going on? Is this just his only way to respond? And I would hope that when we're around people that we would somehow help refocus them on joy, just like Paul did to the Philippians. Here's number four, the fourth reason, to prevail upon the Philippians' goodness to other people. He had a heart there that he loved a man by the name of Epaphroditus, and at the same time he wanted to also help bring Epaphroditus in a closer relationship with the people at Philippi so what he did at that time is he kind of said, with a little bit of gladness, greet him, welcome him home. And here's all I'm gonna say from that. I'm going to, I'm going to, I know it's a stretch, but I think you'll hear this. In his letter, he said, I thank God for you because. So that's gonna be a part of our, our attitude. Second, we're gonna look for a way that we can express guidance to the people we're writing as often as we can without being preachy. Thirdly, we're gonna also look for a way that we could help them to be gladder, happier. But the other thing we're gonna do in our letter is somehow to find out what can we do to bring about closer relationships. And it's I'm not I'm not driving a very close, clear application. I'm just speaking in a general term. What can we do to facilitate better relationships with one another in our letter? Now, this particular letter had all four of those purposes. Your letter, each letter, may not contain all four because the people you're writing to may not have the same issues that the church at Philippi had. All I'm saying is when you begin to write, take yourself to a another level in communicating what you're learning here about expressing gratitude, an attitude of guidance, perhaps a little bit of gladness and a way to show a little bit of goodness to one another. That might be of great help to you. Now, many of you that have been around a long time, you've seen this little word, J-O-Y, but for those of you that are new, this is really cool. It might help you. It might be a little oversimplified, but it'll be a good place to begin. So J stands for Jesus first. Jesus first. The O stands for other second. That seems to be pretty simple, doesn't it? Jesus first, other second. And what do you think the Y stands for, everyone? Say it out loud. Yourself last, all right? Jesus first, other second, and yourself last. And maybe that's a good place for us to begin to work on just a little bit. Well, I just want to begin now. Where does joy begin? And I want to give you just the first point, and then the second, just a couple little thoughts. First of all is to submit yourself to Jesus Christ. If there's a place to begin, you want to submit yourself to Jesus Christ. Notice what Paul did here. He says with Timothy, he says, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, where joy begins. The word servants comes from a word that means bondservant, means submission out of love for the master. And then you see it many times in Scripture where Paul kept hammering at home a bondservant of Christ, bondservant of Christ, bondservant of God, bondservant of Christ, talks all about how that he's a bondservant of the Lord. Well, let me see if I can speak to you this way. I really love you, and this is what I've I've gained. And I'm going to kind of maybe give you a little bit of my own testimony, a little bit of thoughts on this, because I think it really begins. We say, where does it all begin? I'm beginning it with when you surrender yourself as a bondservant to the Lord. But I'd like to take it one step further, because something happened before he became a bondservant of Christ. Paul, as I mentioned, was going down this road. He was lost. He was thinking he was doing the right thing, but he came to a position because God spoke to him in that vision where he realized he was wrong. He had killed Christians, he was away from God and the right way to heaven. All that was going on in his mind is that he realized that he needed a Savior. And at that very moment, he trusted Christ as his Savior. Now here's where I come into this in my story. Let's see if it's your story as well. Can you go back in time, reverse your little rewind of your DVD right now of your life, and go back to that time? And can you remember a time that you did not know Christ as Savior? Can you remember maybe the little bit of time or when it was when you came to know Christ? Was this going on in your mind? Something like, man, I didn't know how lost I was. Man, I didn't know why I was here, where I was going, but... I'm confronted with this truth of the righteousness of God and the sinfulness of me. And I needed to have Christ's righteousness. I needed to be forgiven of my sin. Can you remember that moment when you trusted Christ, whether it was a church or in the backseat of a car or you're down at a meeting somewhere, when you finally said, oh, Lord, I am depending on you for the full forgiveness of my sin. I can only imagine that you had inner tension in two areas. The first tension was you feel like a real creep. You know, real guilty, I'm, man, i have blown, I'm bad. Then you realize your sins are forgiven and the other emotion comes in where you feel like my sins are forgiven. You've heard my testimony, I got saved on a Thursday night, I come home, I confront my dad I'm so excited about, I'm going to heaven and he's not, and I'm just full of joy. Well, I went from I'm lost, I need a savior, and I trusted him to now I have joy. So where does your joy really begin? It's going to begin when you accept Christ as your personal Savior, as the one who's fully forgiven you of your sin. You've got to realize you're a sinner, you can't get to heaven by yourself, and He's forgiven you. And if you do, there's that, there's that relief that you get when your sins are forgiven. Now, that being the case, some of you have that, and you wonder, how come that joy doesn't stay with me? It's because God wants you to do more than just trust Christ to save Savior. Now, that's all you do to go to heaven but there's so much more He has for you, and it's more than just He's your Savior now. Now that you've trusted Christ as Savior, you now make Him your Lord. And that's where we are here in the book of Philippians. It's already happened with Paul. He says, I'm a bond servant of the Lord. Now, there are different terms in the Bible for a servant. One could be just a plain old-fashioned slave. I do it, don't want to do it, God do it, don't have a choice to do it, do to do it, can't get out of it, I'm a slave. That's one way. The other way to say it is, I can be free. I don't have to be a slave, but I'm choosing to be a slave. That takes you back to the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, they had a bunch of slaves. They could be slaves from a lot of different reasons, and that's not important how they became slaves. What became important was that when a slave was given the opportunity to leave, that slave then, some did, came to this realization. I love my wife. I love my kids. I don't want to be separated from them, and boy, do I love my master. And because I love my master, even though I'm free, I, I, I choose to stay underneath my master. I've got a good master. He protects me, he provides for me, he guides me, all right? So I love my master. So now the slave goes back to the master and says, I love you, I love this situation that's here, and I want to be your slave. And so then the master says, I've got to separate you, identify you differently than the other slaves. This is really gross. And he says, come on up here, I'm going to show you how I'm going to sh- make sure people know you're a different kind of slave. He took him up to a doorpost and he took this big steel thing, maybe steel, metal, whatever it was, it was an awl, just kind of a pole, a hole poker, we'll call it, and he puts up the ear and he drills that ear and he puts an awl in there. And so wherever that slave would go, you would look and you'd see that hole in his ear and you'd know, hey, this guy isn't just a slave, he's a slave that was let loose but chose to be a slave back to his boss again because he really loved his boss. That's a bond slave. And so Paul is saying, Paul and Timothy, bond slaves of the Lord. In being a bond slave of the Lord, some of you can emotionally say, oh yes, he's my Lord, I really, I love him with all of my heart. If you really love him, if that's an accurate, biblical, emotional, spiritually relational love with him, then what he wants you to do is to surrender to him. And how you surrender to him is not just say, I surrender to you as my Lord, Now he says, the best way for you to surrender to me is to know what I want you to do. That's the proof of your surrendership, if I can use that term. So he now has written a thing called the Bible. So the Bible is there for us. And now he says, if you're going to surrender to me, then you're going to surrender to my word. So you need to know my word accurately, then you need to do my word, whatever it tells you to do, and no matter the cost. So if you really are my bond slave, you've got to do what I have to do. Let's take you back Old Testament. Oh, I love you, boss. I love my kids. I want to be a part of you. And so we run up over here and he jams us all in our ear, and then we go out and do as wherever we please. That's not a true love slave. When we're doing this, we're saying, we love you so much, what do you want us to do? How high do you want us to jump? When do you want to get up in the morning? Now, in those days, they didn't have a lot of written instructions, Today, for Christians, we've got a lot of written instructions. There's 33,000 of those in the Bible, called Bible verses. So here's where I'm going with it. There are people that will want to obey the Bible, and they have an intellectual knowledge of, of the Lord, but they don't have an intimacy where they really love the Lord. They worship Bible, but maybe not the Lord. There are others that have an emotional attachment to the Lord over here, but they have no understanding of Scripture, and they go in and out of obeying the Bible. So when you say, I'm a bond slave of Jesus Christ, what you're saying is, I love you with all of my heart, soul, and mind. Therefore, I'm going to surrender to what you tell me to do in the Bible. And that's Timothy at that particular point. So that's where you want to begin your joy. Trust Christ as Savior, watch this now, and surrender to the Bible. Now, some of you will find that very difficult because you're afraid that God is going to ask you to do something that either you don't want to do or you don't like to do or you may even think is wrong and it doesn't make sense to you. That's what faith is all about. Faith is what connects you to that, and that's why he says it's impossible to please me unless you have faith. And so I have to trust him. I don't like doing it, but I should do it. Because I love you, I will do it. I don't understand, it doesn't make sense to me, but it says it in the word, therefore I'm gonna do it, and I'm gonna learn this book right here. Now those of you who are stepping over the line from those that are trusting Christ to getting the fullness of joy, which is a surrendership to the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, here's the second place where joy begins. We need to seek to know other people by understanding some things. We need to seek to know other people by understanding some things. This will go pretty quickly, so let's go through this now. The Lord wants us to know and value those who labor among us and are over us. It's interesting how that um, once we know people, we begin to love them a little bit more. So He wants us to know those who labor among us and are over us. In fact, the verse says, To recognize those, the word recognize there actually means to know experientially or to appreciate those who labor among you. So if you want to have joy, one of the things you need to do is get to know the people real well that you're serving with. Second thing you need to do is look at the people who are over you, who are admonishing you. Now, here's my response. As I was looking at that, I was going to say this. Wait a second. There's going to be someone listening to me and they're going to say this. The more I get to know that person, the more I don't like that person. Did you think that? That's what I thought. Maybe that's because I'm so skeptical. I don't know. Yeah, the more I like them, the less I... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And here's... I got thinking, how could I properly biblically answer that? And here's what works for me. It's not necessary that I have to really like everybody because there's going to be certain people you have better, if I can use the word, connection to. Some people call it chemistry. I don't know. But it, it is this, though. I do need to demonstrate a Christ-like love for them. So how do I do that? Well, one way is to realize that God loves that, jer- uh, that person... And if God loves them, I don't have the right to be better than God and not do that. The second thing I have to realize, and watch this, is that person may not know Christ as Savior, so they are doing what they're doing in the propensity of the flesh. They don't know God, so they don't have a governor, so to speak, in their life. And so they're operating on whatever kind of value system, so I can understand a little bit better. And so now I don't let that bother me quite as much as it did. And so now I don't have to let that person be, here it is, a joy robber because I understand now I could go much further and I don't have time for it, but think in terms of what kind of upbringing they have, what kind of people fed them with wrong kind of uh, people skills or so whatever it is. Now let's throw in the fact that they're a Christian. Just being a Christian doesn't mean that they become you know, super sweet. It just means that they have the power source within them and now they have to learn. And maybe what God's done is brought that irregular person into my life to go deeper into the Lord, to receive the joy, to give back to that person, to help them not be such a jerk. I, I don't know, but to help him in some measure. So, that's why getting to know one another might help me in my joy when I begin watch this, when I surrender to the Lord. That's why if I really if I'm really surrendering to the Lord, if I'm really loving the Lord, I will love others. And the best way to love others is to love the Lord. So if I'm struggling with loving other people, it could be because I have a problem with God.